Since I started doing this podcast, I have also taken on a part-time job where I work on contracts, payrolls, invoices, letters, proposals, etc. And one thing has become evident to me. Behind every auspicious boss is a damn good secretary. And I would say that theory applies to the role of Secretary of State as well. According to the U.S. Constitution, the President decides foreign policy and designates a Secretary of State to manage diplomacy at the hand of the State Department, who then admonishes world politics with the consent of the Senate. In addition to advising the President on choosing ambassadors and diplomatic representatives, the Secretary also executes negotiations, administers immigration laws, maintains relations with other countries, is the main line of communication when the government extradites fugitives going to or coming from the United States, and approves passports. The word passport comes from the French passer, to enter or leave, and port, like a port of entry. Ergo, a passport exactly means a permit to leave the country. Early American travel papers were issued by the Department of Foreign Affairs by way of mayors, governors, and notaries before this duty fell to the Department of State. During the 19th century, U.S. citizens only needed passports amid wartime and were not required documentation for international travel until 1914, the year that World War I broke out. There are about three times as many secretaries of state in United States history as there are presidents and vice presidents, and I wanted to introduce you to all of these individuals who have taken on the awesome responsibility of leading U.S. foreign policy. But seeing that my notes are twice that of a normal Scattered Curiosities episode, I am going to make this a two-parter. Let's talk about sex, part one. John Jay, a diplomat, patriot, and founding father, was the first acting Secretary of State under George Washington for less than a year, which was a continuation of his chores as Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Jay set the precedent of our young republic's goals, amongst which was the desire to be recognized by the governments of Europe, the stabilization of American currency, balancing the war debt budget, and securing land borders from the hands of the Spanish, French, British, and Native Americans. He adjudicated and signed the Treaty of Paris 1783, was the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, the second Governor of New York, and co-wrote the Federalist Papers, 
with James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. While John Jay did own slaves, he was in the habitude of buying young ones and freeing them as adults when he felt that he got his money's worth in labor. He ran two ill-fated offenses for president in 1796 and 1800. When John Jay assumed the chief justice role, Thomas Jefferson took the helm as Secretary of State. Prior to that, Thomas was a member of the Virginia Bar and greasing elbows in its House of Burgesses until the British did away with it, one of the many reasons that Jefferson supported autonomy from England. Tom was elected to the Second Continental Congress and drafted the Declaration of Independence at age 33. In the years of the Revolutionary War, Jefferson bounced between being a Virginia delegate, governor, and replacing Benjamin Franklin as the Minister to France, precedent to emerging as the Secretary of State. In that niche, he secured a financial deal with Prussia, as well as a functioning relationship with France despite Washington wanting to stay non-aligned so Britain and France could fight each other. Jefferson's opposing opinions with the commander-in-chief and the secretary of treasury, Alexander Hamilton, pushed his decision to abdicate the appointment. The master of Monticello would return as vice president and then president in the coming years. Edmund Jennings Randolph was an ideal replacement for Jefferson, who even went to the same school. Back when the Revolutionary War broke out, his father fled to England, while Edmund took up arms and functioned under General Washington as an aide-de-camp. So it should come as no surprise that he was called to the Virginia Convention of 1776. He quickly shifted to the first mayor of Williamsburg in front of being balloted governor of Virginia, a post he capitulated within two years because he preferred to be where he could write the laws. Randolph is the man who introduced the Virginia Plan, was a pivotal contributor to the first draft of the U.S. Constitution, and George Washington's personal attorney in advance of being made U.S. Attorney General. He, too, dropped out from Secretary of State in response to corruption charges by the Federalist Party and the inability to keep non-combatant in the overseas war between Britain and France. Scattered curiosity, Edmund Jennings Randolph would hold one more important capacity in his life, representing Aaron Burr for his 1807 treason trial. Timothy Pickering was a lawyer who fought as a colonel in the Revolutionary War, quantum to being marked to the Massachusetts legislature and the Constitutional Congress as a member of the Board of War. Posterior to the Revolution, 
he moved to Pennsylvania, which he would represent in the acclaimed convention that ratified the U.S. Constitution. Tim ministered as Postmaster General, Secretary of War, a Federalist Senator, and a U.S. Representative. While only ad interim Secretary of State for four months, Pickering conciliated with Northeast Indian clans to prevent intertribe alliances and saw that his predecessor, Edmund Randolph, was removed from office by purposely mistranslating French documents that painted Randolph as a traitor. Pickering was pro-British, and his ideas of intervening in foreign wars were different than those of Washington and John Adams. France was upset about the Jay Treaty, refused to accept a U.S. minister, and promised to see ships trading with Britain. President Adams wanted to bargain with France, and Pickering wanted to ally with Britain. He even tried to get another pro-British patriot, Alexander Hamilton, a shift as major general in the army to bulwark approval. John Adams could not support such insubordination and asked Pickering to resign. Pickering refused, so Adams fired him and picked up John Marshall a few weeks later a veteran captain to the Continental Army of the Revolutionary War. As a member of the Virginia Bar, he ascended to a delegate of the Virginia General Assembly and would stay there for the better part of a decade. Emerging as a U.S. representative and selected as Secretary of State on the very same day that Timothy Pickering was let go. Marshall was more in line with the executive branch, who abetted to bring an end to tensions with France and argued against Britain's raiding of U.S. merchant ships and forcing U.S. crews into conscription. But because America had a weaker navy, Marshall would have to go along with recompensing Barbary pirates. John Marshall would only hold the occupation for nine months to instead be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for the remainder of his life. James Madison, an alumni of the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton, was involved in the Virginia Assembly, the Second Continental Congress, the Congress of Confederation, the Virginia House of Delegates, the Annapolis Convention, and the Federal Convention, where he introduced his Virginia Plan, which was the basic model for the U.S. federal government. He and Alexander Hamilton drafted the Federalist Papers to get the Constitution passed. Madison sponsored the Bill of Rights as a U.S. representative and helped Thomas Jefferson found the Democratic-Republican Party. When Jefferson won the ticket of 1800, Madison handled Secretary of State for eight full years, making him the first of whom to do so. 
Madison and Jefferson shared a vision for economic expansion and lobbied to make the Louisiana Purchase Covenant possible with France. While James was unable to procure West Florida from Spain as Secretary of State, when he evolved into president, he did appropriate West Florida with the support of his Secretary of State, Robert Smith. No, not from the cure. This Robert Smith was another Princeton alum who enjoyed a short stint in the Continental Army precursory to studying law. Robert ascended to the Maryland Senate and House of Delegates by the turn of the century when Thomas Jefferson made Smith the Secretary of the Navy, considering his expertise in maritime law. He would endure in the Naval Department as James Madison made him the Secretary of State, but only in the rear of Madison's first choice, Secretary of Treasury Albert Gallatin, who was turned down by the Senate because Gallatin was not natively born in America. Robert Smith would moil with Madison's critics in the Senate, while Madison and Gallatin edited Smith's diplomatic notes. Remember, James Madison once held Smith's spot and did not agree with the way that he went about business. Because of such internal resistance, Bobby found it hard to get anything done. In 1811, Gallatin threatened to vacate if Madison didn't fire Smith. Madison's solution was to make Robert the minister to Russia. But Smith refused and told the public what Madison was doing in the hopes of upsetting the executive branch. Robert Smith washed his hands on April Fool's Day and never percolated as a function in government again. Next up, James Monroe, who fought under George Washington in the 3rd Virginia Infantry of 1775. Monroe got wounded in the Battle of Trenton and rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. At the war's conclusion, he decided to study law at the suggestion of Thomas Jefferson. James was appointed to the Virginia House of Delegates, a member of the Congress of the Confederation, minister to both Britain and France, a U.S. senator and governor of Virginia twice, and fulfilled Secretary of State under James Madison for six years. They were in support of a war with Britain in 1812 over land disputes in Canadian territory when Monroe took on a second title as Secretary of War. Such super-secretarying bolstered James Monroe to become President Number 5, who was able to acquire all of Florida but society would still have to wait 148 years for Disney World to get built. Monroe had a few short-hitch secretaries of state in advance of swearing in John Quincy Adams, a man of the world since childhood 
who had traveled abroad to France as secretary to his father in the time of the Treaty of Paris talks. Johnny Q allegedly loved swimming naked in the Potomac and was fluent in Dutch, French, Latin, Greek, and a little bit of German since graduating from Harvard College and joining the Massachusetts Bar. John Quincy Adams got back into politics a year down the line as a Massachusetts senator and then a U.S. senator when George Washington installed him as minister to the Netherlands. When his father, John Adams, won the presidency, Junior was shifted to U.S. Minister of Prussia. James Madison made him the minister to Russia, where he was received by Tsar Alexander I. John Quincy Adams was in St. Petersburg when Napoleon invaded, and also in Paris for the duration of Bonaparte's acclaimed Hundred Days. John Quincy Adams was vital to the Treaty of Ghent that ended our War of 1812, the Adams Honest Treaty that took Florida and made it available to buy, and encouraged the creation of the Monroe Doctrine. With a resume like that, it is no surprise that he was our next president. At his inauguration, John Quincy Adams took his oath on a book of law instead of the Bible and got right to pushing Congress to fund a naval academy, a road that stretched from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, a national university, and an astronomical observatory. But the people were more interested in states' rights versus the oversight of federal government. Like Napoleon's view of the Jews, John Quincy Adams wanted to assimilate Native Americans in the interest of Western expansion and hoped to light a match under the U.S. economy by satisfying the national debt and leaving Secretary of State to Henry Clay, who was known as the pacificator in regard to his efforts in domestic policy. Henry Clay had been admitted to both the Kentucky and Virginia bars and was a big-time real estate business lawyer in Frankfurt when he was elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives, Kentucky Senator, back to the Kentucky House, and then back to the Kentucky Senate. Henry led the Warhawks, a group of anti-British congressmen, and kept up with his job-hopping trends, serving as Speaker of the House, a U.S. representative, and then back to Speaker of the House for two non-consecutive cycles. Ahead of assuming Secretary of State, Henry Clay made a run for the presidency in the referendum of 1824. With no victory in sight, he went contra to the Kentucky legislature by supporting John Quincy Adams instead of Andrew Jackson, 
which is why some would refer to his Secretary of State installation as a, quote, corrupt bargain, end quote. But Clay was well qualified for the post. He parlayed the Treaty of Ghent, championed to keep the British from navigating the Mississippi River for free, and centered his foreign policy around the American system to get federal support for the realm's economic development. Clay settled more than 12 commercial treaties and got the British to plunk down for freed wartime slaves. Posterior to his time as Secretary of State, Henry Clay went back to the U.S. Senate for two more nonlinear sessions. Martin Van Buren was reciting law, foregoing his shift to the surrogate of Columbia County, being preferred to the New York State Senate, as New York's Attorney General, the U.S. Senate, and then Governor of New York, a responsibility he turned over in order to act as Secretary of State for Andrew Jackson's first term. Jackson had a contracted grip on his foreign affairs, and Martin's coronation was given to repay him for providing the New York vote in the barnstorm. However, Jackson would heed Martin's advice concerning domestic issues like the Indian Removal Act of 1830. With Jackson at his side, Van Buren struck an accord with England to allow the United States to trade with the British West Indies, got France to agree to hand over reparations for land taken during the Napoleonic Wars, and sealed a deal with the Ottoman Empire allowing trade in the Black Sea. They were less fortunate in settling a boundary issue between New Brunswick and Maine, America's claim on the Oregon Territory, getting commercial relations with Russia, or persuading Mexico to sell Texas. Van Buren left his situation to challenge Jackson's then-Vice President, John C. Calhoun's, revolt within the cabinet. Jackson sent Van Buren to be the U.S. minister to Great Britain for a while, but Van Buren was forced to return when the Senate denied his nomination. With no place else to be, Jackson had Van Buren join him as vice president for his second standing. Edward Livingston graduated from Princeton and would go on to polish law in New York City a few years latterly. His older brother, Robert Livingston, was the Secretary of Foreign Affairs during the Articles of Confederation government and was a massive asset to Edward's success as a politician. Edward was a U.S. representative to New York and New York Attorney General who moved to the Big Easy to act as an aide-de-camp for General Andrew Jackson's Battle of New Orleans. Edward reverted to the game of civics in the Louisiana State House of Representatives 
and U.S. Senate. In 1831, Andrew Jackson requested that everyone on his cabinet step down in order to abate rigidity between him and Vice President John C. Calhoun, who had many allies there. Livingston was ordained Secretary of State to replace the now Vice President, Martin Van Buren, and would carry on for two years, tethered to an extremely short leash being held by Jackson, leaving Edward unable to attain many of his goals alongside the broken efforts of his forebearers. He, too, would demit the station, only to be re-established as the U.S. Minister to France, which was magnifique for Livingston, who had grown quite accustomed to French culture. Louis McLean of Delaware would then carry the torch, who was a Navy man anterior to joining the Delaware Bar. He was decided for the U.S. House of Representatives and U.S. Senate when Andrew Jackson gave him the minister to Britannia. Lewis was then called back to the mainland when Edward Livingston hung up his secretary pants for French pantalones. McLean reorganized the Department of State and fortuitously met with Spain to resolve the arguments over U.S. claims on land taken in the course of the Napoleonic Wars, but struggled to get France to compensate for its disruption to commerce that it had initially agreed to stake in 1831. So McLean suggested a retaliation of French exports, an idea readily struck down by Andrew Jackson. On the grounds of these irreconcilable differences with the president, McLean joined the resigned Secretaries Club. But his diplomatic hustle wasn't quite complete because James K. Polk would make Lewis the U.S. minister to Great Britain again in years to come. In the meantime, John Forsyth of Georgia labored as Secretary of State for two different presidents, Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. Forsyth's suitability included his own legal practice, Attorney General of Georgia, U.S. Representative, U.S. Senator, U.S. Minister to Spain, back to the House of Representatives to argue for the removal of Native American tribes, and governor of Georgia. As Secretary of State, he already had a broad world view, having assisted John Quincy Adams with the Adams-Onus Treaty. Forsyth managed to squeeze $5 million from France for the country's damage to the foreign trade in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, and reluctantly buckled down with Jackson in greeting the Republic of Texas. Alongside Van Buren, Forsyth was a little more vocal about his opposition to the subjoining of the Lone Star State and was preponderant to the decision of the 1839 Amistad lawsuit 
which stipulated the African slaves aboard the vessel to be sent back to Sierra Leone. Forsyth would stay for the end of Van Buren's stretch, exiting as the new ministry came in, which included Daniel Webster. Nope, not the dictionary guy, but a graduate from Dartmouth College who was an impressive attorney, representative to Massachusetts, and senator that argued many Supreme Court cases defending the Union in the state's rights nullification crisis. Webster was chosen for Secretary of State by William Henry Harrison, but completed his service under President Tyler on the scent of Harrison's untimely cessation. Daniel Webster is highly credited with strengthening the U.S. government and widening foreign trade. He interceded in many squalls with Great Britain, such as the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, which finally defined the boundary of the state of Maine. Webster called for U.S. involvement in ending the African slave trade, which healed relations between the two nations, allowing the United States to focus on Western expansion. Webster walked away from Secretary of State, sequential of a disagreement with President Tyler over divisive Texas. Daniel revisited the U.S. Senate for five more years, supervenient of his diplomatic millstones. Next at bat, Abel Parker Upshur, who grew up on a farm and went to Yale and Princeton to study law. Abel operated in the Virginia House of Delegates and as a justice of its general court when President Tyler, a longtime friend, commissioned him for Secretary of the Navy. Abel was adamant about expanding American naval capabilities, reforming its presidium, and equipping it with modern warships. Upshur was pro-slavery, petitioned for the adjoining of Texas as a slave state, and made efforts towards settling the land variance with Britain over the yet unsolved Oregon Territory. Abel was selected for Secretary of State July 4, 1843, though the Senate did not confirm Upshur for half a year. Therefore, he was only officially Secretary of State for roughly two months because he expired at the end of February aboard the battleship Princeton when one of her guns accidentally fired and exploded, ironically killing the former naval secretary and Princeton alum that was gunning for more modern firearms. John Nelson of Maryland kept the seat warm for a month, relinquishing it to John Caldwell Calhoun of South Carolina, who had held the deputations of U.S. Representative Secretary of War, and even Vice President of the United States in the days of yore, briefly serving as Secretary of State for the halting year of John Tyler's presidency. Calhoun is one of the rare men to have been Vice President 
under two different presidents, John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, who bailed out on the racket to return to the Senate. Tyler expected Calhoun to append Texas, and he attempted to do so by bringing an accord of annexation to the Senate where it was shot down. Some speculate it was because of John's support of slavery in the proposed new state. While thwarted in that sector, Calhoun was able to make progress with Britain over the oft-mentioned today Oregon Territory and put his name on the first commercially viable reconciliation with China. He was not invited to stay on as Secretary of State with the pursuing president, James Knox Polk. That honor instead went to James Buchanan, a lawyer who had faced the British in the War of 1812, who was fully immersed in politics when he got drafted to the State Assembly, elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, and minister to Russia in St. Petersburg. In the wake of his return, James was elected to the Senate, but deep down had his sights set on the presidency. Polk rewarded Buchanan's support by making him Secretary of State. The two men acquiesced with regards to manifest destiny and both wanted to see the United States expand westward. The team was really focused on claiming Texas, a significant factor in the Mexican-American War, which concluded with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, opening up a ton of land, but not quite to the James's satisfaction. They also wanted Baja and Mexico's northern provinces. Even though Polk and Buchanan were good friends, Polk kept a tight control of foreign policy undeterred by Buchanan's complaints. Buchanan would attempt to hook the Democratic presidential nomination again, but was given the concession prize of minister to Great Britain. He was finally able to earn the 1856 nomination and won that sucker, finding his Secretary of State with John Middleton Clayton, a graduate of Yale ahead of being apprenticed to his cousin's law firm. Clayton was picked for the Delaware State Legislature, House of Representatives, Secretary of State of Delaware, U.S. Senate, and Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. He admired the Monroe Doctrine and interminably tried to avoid conflicts with Portugal and France. John's biggest accomplishment as Secretary of State was the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty designed to allow the United States to dig a canal through the Central American country of Nicaragua. While it was never actually built, it would achieve a sort of ice-breaking in the region for what would ultimately be the Panama Canal. John played the part of Secretary of State for a little under a year and a half, subsequent to the demise of Zachary Taylor. When Millard Fillmore acceded the Oval Office, 
Daniel Webster reemerged as the Secretary of State, and this time around, he was able to focus more on domestic affairs, like the Fugitive Slave Law and the Compromise of 1850. Webster abnegated life ahead of finishing his second proprietorship of Secretary of State under three separate presidents, which is when Congress vetted Edward Everett. Edward was a Harvard graduate and Unitarian pastor who earned his Ph.D. in Europe to prepare himself as a U.S. representative, governor of Massachusetts, minister to Great Britain, and then back to Harvard to be president of the prestigious university. Since Everett was sworn in as Millard Fillmore lost the bid for re-election from his party, Edward only delivered the goods for four months, but would soon enjoy another title as senator to Massachusetts. Franklin Pierce's choice for secretary of state was William Marcy, a veteran of the War of 1812 whose involvement in politics was that of State Comptroller of Albany in front of acting as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court in New York, U.S. Senator, Governor, and James K. Polk's Secretary of War. Marcy did not have much experience in foreign policy, nor had he ever even been outside of the United States. He was chosen for his wisdom. In contempt of William Marcy's lack of qualifications, he signed many charters, such as the Gadsden Treaty, opening up 30,000 square miles to a cross-country railroad. William also drew up papers that argued for U.S. annexation of Cuba, which was released to the public, but then retracted to criticism of Pierce for widening U.S. slavery off of U.S. soil. Marcy stayed with Franklin for his plenary tenure and gave up the ghost infra four months. Genetically, Lewis Cass was a patriot. His father had fought in the Revolutionary War alongside George Washington at Bunker Hill. Lewis was made a member of the Ohio House of Representatives when President Jefferson appointed him to U.S. Marshal of Ohio. The War of 1812 bumped Cass up to a general, helping him gain the title of Governor of the Michigan Territory, and Andrew Jackson making him Secretary of War. Directly after the Jackson administration, Lewis represented as minister to France and tried to earn the Democratic presidential nomination in 1844, but was defeated. He instead assumed the role of a U.S. senator to Michigan. Four years come Sunday, Lewis Cass did manage to get the presidential nomination, but lost the race to Zachary Taylor. So, it was back to the Senate and failing to get the presidential nomination again in 1852. His agenda as Secretary of State was that of uniting the Democratic Party. 
Among his international handicraft, Louis Cass was able to arbitrate limits with Great Britain over control in Latin America and cessation of molestation to U.S. ships. Looking ahead to the inevitable election of Abraham Lincoln, Lewis began to disagree with President Buchanan's foreign policy and signed off in 1860 as Congress approved the allotment of Jeremiah Sullivan Black, who lingered for the final year of James Buchanan's bureau. Jeremiah was the Attorney General for Somerset County, Pennsylvania, a fan of Andrew Jackson, and good friend of James Buchanan. He was the first judge of the 16th Judicial Court, ahead of being reformed as Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court. As Secretary of State, Black was anti-secession, though his legal determination on the matter was that it was unconstitutional to force a state to persist in the Union contrary to its will. Because of the population's malaise in the furrow of the upcoming war, Jeremiah's focus was relegated to domestic rather than foreign affairs. Although he did have one big international decree in 1861 to all of America's diplomatic ambassadors around the globe, urging other commonwealths not to accept the Confederacy. The next month, Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated and Black removed himself as Secretary of State to be of assistance as reporter to the U.S. Supreme Court and returning to Pennsylvania to iterate law for another two decades. William Henry Seward was in the New York State Senate, satisfied the role of its governor, and held an anti-slavery stance as a member of the U.S. Senate. He was a strong contender for the Republican presidential nomination in 1860, but was considered to be more outspoken on the slavery issue than Honest Abe Lincoln. Immediately, talks of dissension began in the South, and Lincoln had Seward working with leaders in both halves of the Dominion, but was abortive. William sent representatives to Europe to amass support for the Union, but was facing criticism when its Navy maintained Confederate ships bound for Europe, which they allowed to trade with Great Britain to avoid yet another war. It was tough because Britain was making money and the South had lots of products to trade. Seward was Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State for the plentitude of his time as president. He was in charge of the noteworthy acquisition of Alaska, a.k.a. Seward's Folly, but was unable to guarantee possession of the Virgin Islands or the Dominican Republic. He supported a Mexican revolt facing its French emperor, Archduke Maximilian, at the end of the Civil War. In the chaos of Lincoln's assassination, Seward stayed on as Andrew Johnson's Secretary of State 
even though they did not concede on many issues. Remember, Johnson was a Democrat in a Republican cabinet. Alayu Benjamin Washburn was accepted to Congress as a Whig, but joined the newly formed Republican Party shortly thereafter. He was part of a faction known as the Radical Republicans, who would espouse fiscal responsibility. Alehu was directed to the Secretary of State only temporarily by Ulysses S. Grant and would give up the ship in just five days to open the slot up for Hamilton Fish. As a thank you gesture, Grant made Washburn the U.S. Minister to France an assignment he would hold through the Franco-Prussian War. Several diplomats abandoned Paris, but Washburn stayed to maintain a U.S. presence there, hovering in the expectation of the war's end. When Washburn reappeared in the United States, he was in the mix of names to be the Republican Party candidate for president in both 1876 and 1880, but of course, lost both times. So, he did what any man in his situation should do, and wrote his memoirs. Hamilton Fish was a U.S. congressman, lieutenant governor of New York, actual governor of New York, and then went back to the U.S. Senate. Formerly a member of the defunct Whig Party, Fish swam his way over to the Republican team and was chair of the Union Defense Committee of New York during the Civil War. He declined Ulysses S. Grant's offer of Secretary of State, not realizing that Grant had already sent the recommendation to Congress. Fish floundered to gain new territory in the Dominican Republic and in the area run by the Hudson Bay Company, which Britain ended up selling to Canada. He tirelessly pegged away to get the Spanish to give Cuba self-reliance and to end slavery there, but was fruitless in this arena as well. At home, Indian raids and weak peripheral patrol with Mexico complicated matters for the next president and secretary of state in charge, Rutherford B. Hayes and William Maxwell Everts. Everts was a Whig-affiliated ADA of South New York, but had shifted his political leanings to the new Republican Party, where he made a futile run for the U.S. Senate. He prosecuted Civil War Confederate pirates, convinced Britain to cut off assistance to the Confederate states, and did the same with France. William was so prosperous that Andrew Johnson hired him for his impeachment trial and rewarded Everts with Attorney General. William lawyered for the Republican Party in the Hayes-Tilden Commission, and when Rutherford B. Hayes was crowned the president, Everts was brought on as his Secretary of State. William was torn whether or not to salute the new Mexican government, most in his situation did, but he did not, 
and therefore asserted that U.S. soldiers could cross Mexican boundaries to chase Indians. Mexico responded by putting its troops on the fringe. Everts then recognized the government, but held firm that U.S. troops could still cross the line. At the request of Western states, Everts settled with China to limit immigrants moving to the area. But he could not bring peace between Peru, Bolivia, and Chile in the aftermath of the War of the Pacific. William Everts would go on to be a U.S. senator following his time at the Department of State. James Gillespie Blaine was editor of the Kennebec Journal in Augusta, Maine, and it was by virtue of this publication he was thrust into politics, joined the Republican Party, and got elected to Congress, Speaker of the House, and even made a go at securing the Republican nomination for president in 1876, but had to settle for a Senate seat instead, where he again attempted to nab the Republican nomination for the Oval Office, only this time his consolation prize was a little bit sweeter. James Garfield fingered him as Secretary of State. Blaine eventually did win the candidacy of the Republican Party, only to lose to Grover Cleveland. James concentrated his efforts on bringing peace to the homeland while calling for expansion of commercial goods and beefing up America's navy. He was unable to arrange armistice in the War of the Pacific or mitigate agitation between Guatemala and Mexico. When President Garfield was assassinated, Blaine held down the fort so Chester A. Arthur could enjoin former U.S. Senator and Attorney General of New Jersey, Frederick Theodore Freelinghuisen. As Secretary, Frederick would encounter some of the same issues of his foregoer in efforts to harvest peace between Bolivia, Peru, and Chile, which had been a point of contention between the U.S. and South America. Frederick canceled the Pan-American conference that Blaine had set up counter to Chester Arthur's wishes and met his demise a few months hindmost of serving his absolute secretarial incumbency. Thomas Francis Bayard was the district attorney for Delaware and then a U.S. senator when he was called to be the secretary of state. Bayard is one of the rare few to hold the function for the intactness of a president's time in the White House, Grover Cleveland. Bayard made delegations based on skill and merit versus political loyalty as he tried to renew agreements with Hawaii and call attention to Japanese autarky. Once away from the secretary post, he spent four years as the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain with Cleveland's second, but non-consecutive, presidential span. You may remember a few secretaries ago, we talked about James G. Blaine. 
He's back, baby. In 1888, Blaine backed Benjamin Harrison, who in turn made him Secretary of State. Again. As in the old days, Blaine faced challenges and was unable to end restlessness over German presence in Samoa, could not settle seal hunting rights on the Bering Sea, and had trouble controlling the 1891 Italian lynchings in New Orleans. But he did make ample strides with the Pan-American Union. James Blaine separated himself from the birth, much to the surprise of the president's cabinet and the president himself. That is, until Blaine ran against him, but waning health assured that James did not win. Congress accepted Harrison's nomination of John Watson Foster to do the job. John Foster fought for the Union Army as a major in the Civil War, evolving to colonel by its end. In peacetime, John earned a living as the Evansville, Indiana postmaster, was a strong supporter to the re-election of Ulysses S. Grant, and was awarded for his loyalty with the faculty as minister to Mexico. His successes south of the extremity led to his undertaking as minister to Russia, and as minister to Spain, he tried to get a trade agreement for Cuba and Puerto Rico. John played the part of Secretary of State for the final eight months of Benjamin Harrison's turn as head cheese. In that time, he failed to achieve such measures as getting the British away from colonizing Samoa, procuring a 99-year lease for a naval base in the Dominican Republic, and tagging the Kingdom of Hawaii. Scatter curiosity, when John Foster perished in 1917, his son-in-law, Robert Lansing, was the Secretary of State. Foster was also the grandfather of John Foster Dulles, who will also become Secretary of State in Part 2 of this episode. Walter Quinton Grisham was part of the Indiana State Legislature, as well as a lieutenant colonel in the Civil War Union Army, who would be aggrandized to brevet Major General. Walter tried to gain a seat in the U.S. Congress twice, but instead got the gig of U.S. District Judge for Indiana via assignment from Ulysses S. Grant, where he made camp until Chester A. Arthur gave him the vocation of Postmaster General, followed by Secretary of the Treasury. Grisham ran as a Republican in two presidential primaries without a victory. Displeased with his party, Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, asked Walter to be Secretary of State, in part to promote bipartisan politics. He immediately looked into what caused John Foster from securing Hawaii and discovered that the United States was involved in trying to overthrow the Queen. 
Cleveland wanted to remove the sanction of Hitchup from the Senate and put the Queen back in power. But his request was denied. Grisham held on to Secretary of State for two years down to his necrosis in 1895. Richard Olney was a lawyer, former member of the Massachusetts State's legislature, and acting U.S. Attorney General when Walter Grisham ceased to exist. From the moment Grover Cleveland appointed him as the Secretary of State, Richard was mired with issues apropos of Cuban revolutionaries fighting the Spanish off their island and ordered the U.S. government to stop any cargo going into Cuba from organizations on the mainland sympathetic to the Cubanos. Richard was able to settle a boundary flare-up between colonial Guyana and Venezuela while he butted heads with the former secretary and now ambassador to the UK, Thomas Bayard. When Cleveland's second term expired, Olney marooned the Department of State, circled back to law, and wrote about foreign affairs. In 1904, Richard managed to earn the Democratic presidential nomination only to see the top prize go to Teddy Roosevelt. By and by, Olney was offered ambassador to Great Britain, but turned it down for the sake of his age. And we have reached our halfway point. In the interest of not overloading your phone storage or your brain, we will leave it here for part one and dive right back into it as we enter the 20th century and America enters the world stage as a major power. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show